welcome to the Gathering Place Church weekly podcast. We hope today's message ignites, equips, and challenges you to live out your Christian faith and to bring healing to a broken world. You know, I don't know about you this morning, but I identify with that song that wasn't really planned out, but you've heard it, we've done it before, that the Holy Spirit has a way of shaking things up in your life. And if you don't know this about our church is we welcome that shaking. And a lot of the times we put man-made traditions around ourselves. We put man-made ideas toward important topics or theological understandings. And this is why you can't just put your theology, you can't put your, um, your politics, you can't put your kind of truth of life on autopilot and expect it just to always get you to Jesus. You got to be willing to allow some things to be squeezed. You've got to wrestle. You've got to shake. And today, I, I, I believe this is important because I'm touching a very sacred cow a very sacred tradition within evangelicalism. And for some of us today, it's gonna be a little spicy. It's gonna be a little hard to allow the hot coal to touch it and to shake some things up in it. Because here's what we have to understand. The way of Jesus is the way of the scriptures. And I was looking the other day and in America, on the registered church list of America, there are 45,000 registered nonprofit churches in America. So that tells me there are 45,000 different interpretations and understandings of what we see as truth. And this is just the church. So as I stand before you, there's a lot of wrestling anytime before I stand and share topics that can be deemed controversial topics that can be deemed as, well, that's not what I've always heard. But you've always got to go back to if a pastor taught you it, or you learned it in uh, some denominational school of thought, you've got to then take it back to the scripture. And what I've, where my wrestling has happened over the last five years is just because it looks evangelical or it's simply Protestant doesn't mean it's technically the way of Jesus. And for some, many, that's enough to shake you right there because it begins to touch kind of foundations you've placed in your life on how I understand scripture, how I understand worship, how I understand communion, how I understand marriage. If you read scripture, there's always not just a translation that comes with it, but there's also a a, a worldview that accompanies it. If you're Presbyterian, you have a Presbyterian worldview. If you're non-denominational, I'm sorry, but we don't know what your worldview is, but it's somewhere in there. And so as we are a non-denominational church, and many of the mega non-denominational churches hear this, it's always of, we will just keep it at a painted broad stroke. We will not draw theological lines because we have everyone from Catholic to Lutheran to you've been recently saved and you really don't know what you believe. And so there really is no putting pen to paper on this is what we believe because it's just kind of open to your interpretation. If you feel that or you like this 
evangelist or you like this teacher and, and you feel it, then that's what you go with. You're kind of left to self-interpret for yourself. And there's a lot of danger and a lot of red flags in that. And the reason we have 45,000 denominations is because that is the mainstream way of thinking in the church. And so what I'm stepping into is on the topic of Israel today. And the statement I want to make today before we get into not understanding the political standpoint of Israel, but the theological and the moral obligations of should Christians support Israel. Now, what I'm going to say today, I am not pro-Hamas, so if anyone who watches this after and wants to try to sermon bite something, I am not pro-Hamas, I am not pro-Islam, I am pro-Israel in the respect that they are attacked, they are persecuted, they have the right to defend themselves as a sovereign nation. Do we all agree with that today? Okay. And many have sent emails, asked questions, you know, why aren't we praying for Israel? What, what's your stance on Israel? Well, in about five years ago, even before that, if you just run on autopilot as an evangelical, you will take what's known as the theology accompanying Israel is dispensationalism. And this is what we're going to be looking at today is what is dispensationalism? Where does it come from? Does it line up biblically? Because if you have been in an evangelical church, a mega church, um, things that aren't traditionally Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or East, even traditional Protestant churches, Lutheran, Presbyterian, by default, you've been taught most likely dispensationalism. You've been taught pre-trib rapture theory. And so we're going to be taking several weeks. I'm going to be going very slow. I'm going to be taking a very complex subject and trying to make it as simple as possible. So please pray for your pastor. Okay? I need it. And this has been um, years of study on my part. Um, and I'm ready to really open up Pandora's box and begin to teach through these things. And in addition, as we get into Christmas, as it's a season of Thanksgiving, um, I love it because we can follow along the ways of Jesus as we head into Christmas, as we head into Pentecost, that there is moments and seasons where we can identify into these, the sweetness of what we're taught, and we can journey with Jesus in his passion, we can journey with Jesus in his incarnation of why he came, how he set Israel free, and how we truly understand what this means. So let's position our hearts today. And again, if I offend you with something I say, if I speak against what your tradition teaches you along this topic, um, please wrestle with it. And please make sure that if you have questions, you don't walk out of here in one sense and just walk out offended, I'm leaving that church. Um, as a lot of people do in these type of things, um, I believe not here. I want to be a good shepherd and a good pastor. And I could easily skip over these things and just not touch them, not address them. But I believe in what God is leading our church in. These are the spaces we will live in from kind of this point forward. We'll touch hard things. We'll say what needs to be said. Because it's not about the money. It's not about the platform. It's not about how many people follow, how many people click, like, and subscribe. 
It's not why we do this here. I'm not standing here as a hireling. I'm not standing here as someone who can just give you messages that will get you to feel good, that will get you to hoorah, and that will get you to a place of, I can, I can, that's palatable enough for me. That's a broad enough stroke. So as we position our hearts, let's go before the Lord in prayer. You've already said it today, Lord, I give you my heart. It's one of the most powerful things we can pray, we can declare. So Jesus, we truly give you our hearts. You are Lord of our life. God, we thank you for what you've instituted. You've given us the church. And in the church, we find a treasury of wisdom, a treasury of all that we have need of for a godly life, a holy life, a life that is pleasing to you. We understand that you are prophetically at work in the church. And God, we want to partner in that with you. We don't want to be deceived. We don't want to be feelings led in our theology. We don't want to be blind to certain things. But Jesus, teach us today through your scripture, through your word. We love you, Lord. And we thank you that you don't leave us to just wing it and figure it out. So we surrender to you, the person of Jesus, your spirit, and dwell within us today. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, you can be seated. Thank you, worship team. We appreciate you today. Were you blessed today by worship? Well, as we get into the hot topic of Israel, all it would take is a simple Google search, and you will find many differing opinions, politically, yes, but also biblically, of how do we understand it, how do we see this worldview today. And as I stated, there's, I'm just going to open and crack open what the scriptures teach, but I will be doing an in-detail podcast through the week on these topics. Um, so if you are not subscribed to that, there's a QR code on the seat back in front of you. You can scan that, sign up for the email list, and I'm going to be sending resources, places of study, um, scripture, and uh, personal podcast that I do uh, that will help you understand that. So in understanding where does the moral uh, and theological obligation come from supporting Israel, what you have to look at is the theology that accompanies this. This is going to be a great service to take some notes in. Like I said, I will send you these notes, but it's good to help you stay engaged today. When you think of where this comes from, it comes from a man, dispensationalism, uh, by the name of John Nelson Darby. John Nelson Darby was uh, an Anglican layperson uh, in the 1830s who put together this worldview of how we view really from the Garden of Adam and Eve all the way to the, the consummation of the kingdom in the book of Revelation. And he placed it in what he uh, describes as seven dispensations. So a dispensation is kind of a start and a stop. Now, in what has been traditionally, biblically, always held by the church since the beginning of time is covenantal theology. And what covenantal theology is, is you have first covenant, second covenant, 
and kingdom. You have Old Testament, you have New Testament, and you have the kingdom of God. This is traditionally what the church for thousands of years has understood, um, how we view a linear approach, which means we start from point A and we go to point Z. There is no pause, there is no stop, there is no second covenant uh, in the respect of that Israel, the, the, the national state, the secular state of Israel has their own covenant and the church has their own covenant. Now let me describe it as this way. In dispensationalism, what John Darby taught uh, in the 1830s would actually be held by the church to be heretical at the time. It was a heretical teaching. But you fast forward after Darby had died in 1948 when Israel became its own sovereign state, this theology was then revisited and believed to vindicate what this, uh, that it stands with authoritative truth. Um, what, I, what you need to know as well that in dispensational theology, especially when it comes to the state of Israel, is you've got to understand that Israel has different understandings of when you read the scripture. And we're going to look today at the words of Jesus. We're going to look today at the words of Paul, of what it means, the Israel of God, and then the Israel, when you take a map and you look at it and you see the nation of Israel. If you just take a literal stab at the scripture, which dispensationalist teaches, anytime you see Israel, it is directly reflecting the national secular state that you see on front of you when you open a map. So in dispensationalism, it teaches that God paused when he began to deal with Israel, that he put a parenthesis, and in that, God is in heaven pulling levers that in this dispensation, he's dealing with Israel, and then he pulls another level and lever, and he deals with the church. And when you get into it, it gets very confusing. Uh, not too long ago, there was about uh, probably four or five months ago, while you were sitting in church, there was someone who drove by our church and put a piece of paper on your car. Many of you got it. And it was a long laundry list trying to get you to understand what dispensation lo looks like and getting to the, to the day and time when the return of Jesus will happen. So in understanding how this works, it is heavily engaged in Pentecostalism and charismatic understanding um, and kind of in more non-traditional Protestant movements. So if you've met someone who is very zealous about the end times, about the pre-trib rapture, it, it, it kind of has a look and a feel to it. And there's a high zeal for the state of Israel that all of Bible prophecy only happens through the state of Israel, and it, does, and, and it, and it leaves the church absent um, of that. So you've got to understand what we're going to see today, that through the scripture, you just can't take a literal stab at it. But when Israel is mentioned, it is mentioned in the realm, the Israel of God is the church. Now, if you are a, a well-versed dispensationalist, you would be tickering in your mind right now that Pastor Garrett is preaching replacement theology, that I am replacing Israel with the church. And I would turn it back over and say, well, the real replacement theology is that you're replacing uh, the church with Israel, or you're replacing Israel with the church. So in understanding all this, you'll say, well, how does this, and this is what I always try to prepare, any kind of subject that I bring, especially in this realm, of how is this pastor going to help me when I get to Monday? 
You know, where, where is this practically going to take me? You've got to understand this. If you believe in a pre-trib rapture, uh, it affects how you view everything in Scripture, how you view that which is important. That, um, and understand this. I have acquaintances that I went to Oral Roberts University with, um, and dispensationalism in various ways is, is taught there and believed. And by default, I believed this at one point. You've got to understand this. So I'm coming from a place of this was just kind of my by default of how I viewed the world, how I viewed Israel, how I viewed the end. Many churches, non-denom, charismatic, Pentecostal, in northern Kentucky would hold true to dispensational theology. So know as I teach this today, other churches run full force into this idea of rapture theory, starting with John Nelson Darby and taking it to present day. Have I lost anybody yet? Are you okay? You tracking with me? So here we go. I want to put up this graphic for you, and this will help understand. And again, we'll send this to you. But Nadia, if you would put this up, this is kind of where the different dispensations. Again, it's where you have seven different dispensations and kind of how it's all laid out. And not only if you get to John Delson um, Darby, you then get into where... Uh, in the 50s, 60s, kind of in the Jerry Farewell era, the televangelist, the televangelist era, this viewpoint was greatly pushed. Sending money in to support Israel, you send money in and a portion of that goes. Uh, if you're asked um, of, should we send guns and weapons and money to support Israel? Most of us, as I was, you give a biblical response to it not a political response. So again, you have to get to the place of understanding from the scripture of that which is a political state of what I see on a map to where Jesus, Paul, and the apostles and what the church has taught from the beginning of how I view Israel, uh, not from a political standpoint, but understanding who the true Israel of God is. So are you ready to get some scripture for this? These aren't my opinions we're going to get into what the scripture teaches. And as you see in the bottom, you'll see covenant theology. Again, it's law, grace, and kingdom. It's not everything is, is uh, stopped and started. Again, God in heaven pulling levers of where he deals with Israel and then to where he deals with the church. So let's look at Romans 11. You can turn there in your Bibles. And again, this is important with how you see the end. In my humble opinion, is just as important as you see the story of creation. That a lot of times these are given as open-handed issues. And when you study and understand, um, there are certain things of how you view eschatology, the apocalypse, the coming of Christ. It should not be a complex topic. It should be very easy to understand. But again, in dispensationalism, it creates a lot of chaos, a lot of confusion to where you live in fear. You huddle in the church your whole life because you don't know if I'm going to miss the secret rapture, right? The secret second coming that is just for the church. And in the secret second coming, you've got to understand dispensationalists actually teach a third coming, that there is a secret coming where the church is raptured out then a, a period of seven years of tribulation begins. And in the seven years of tribulation, Israel is judged. 
There is great tribulation. The church never touches any sort of pain, peril, or problem or tribulation. The church is raptured out. Israel is dealt with. Then in seven years, Christ brings what's known as this millennial reign for a thousand years, where he then comes for a third time, comes down, brings this reign, and then he rules from a political standpoint in the physical place of Israel. So this is what this teaches. And for some of us, maybe it's even bringing more clarity of what you kind of always thought, but you've never heard it communicated uh, in this type of way. So as I'm talking about today, who would say that, real quick, that I've been taught dispensational theology, that I've kind of believed in a in a pre-trib type of rapture. Okay, well, I've been there with you, so it's okay. You can take a deep breath and you can breathe a little bit. Because here's what we're gonna see, especially in regards, because you've gotta ask the question, if this is where the theology of Israel comes from in modern-day evangelicalism, then I have to ask the question, what is Israel and who is Israel? Because is Israel the secular state I see on a map? Or is it speaking much bigger and much deeper to uh, a people, but is this people a secular Jew that is living in this place of Israel? So this is what we're going to see today because Jesus and Paul speak very clearly of this. So Romans chapter 11. So in verse 16 through 25, that's where we'll read. All right, so starting in verse 16, it says, For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of these branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, And with them, become a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. So what this is talking about is there is one tree. And this is the analogy that Paul is giving here. He's giving it to Romans, who are Gentiles. And now they're having to understand of how am I grafted in to this salvation narrative, to this salvation story. So all of us here today, unless you come from straight up Jewish descent, are a Gentile. So this speaks to you. This is how we are grafted in and how Jesus brings about the new covenant. So he's telling these Romans, these Gentiles, this is how this happens. But then he's going to tell them that here's how the Jew now gets grafted in. And the, the Jews who are unbelieving have to come to repentive faith in Jesus. So he says in verse 18, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So what he's saying to the Gentiles here is you can't wag your finger at the Jews and say, I'm in and you're out, right? There's not to be this arrogance and this boasting that we're a part of the covenant and that you are not. So Paul's addressing this, that this is not to be the posture of how this happens, Verse 19, you will say then, branches were broken off, that I may be grafted in. Well said, in verse 20, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and you stand by faith. So what he's getting into, and he's even going to hit the notion of theology of the once saved, always saved. That even as a Gentile who believes in Jesus Christ, who has had faith, who has had a confession of faith, 
And we're going to see this. You actually have to stand in your faith, that you can be broken off of this branch if you don't continue to stand in your faith, if you apostatize, if you decide to deconstruct all the way into atheism and, and believe that God is not the God of what we see in the scriptures. So you've got to understand that Paul's even getting into touching the notion of that I'm a frozen chosen or that because I prayed a prayer when I was really little in my life but there is no fruit in my life, that I'm, I'm in, I'm good, I'm okay. So the once saved, always saved is also a very new doctrine that was not always believed by the church. So you've, you've got to wrestle with this as well. So he's dealing with the Gentile that there's only one tree, there's not two separate trees, but if you don't cling and don't allow yourself through repentant faith to be, to be grafted into this tree, Jew and Gentile alike, you are broken off. So it's saying here, Jews are broken off of this tree if they don't come to Jesus who grafts all in. Verse 21, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell, feel severity, but towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So it's talking about that in this new covenant, you get what you choose. The new covenant is conditional, that just because of a certain ethnicity, just because of a certain race, just because of a certain geopolitical, uh, Uh, geographical location. We're even going to see where Jesus talks about just because you have the DNA of Abraham doesn't mean you have a special dispensation that you will be saved. Everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, has to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Do we agree there? Okay. So this is what uh, Paul is talking about, is that there is one tree and Jew and Gentile both have to be grafted in. To Jesus, and he's the one who grafts us in. And if we don't stand in this faith, again, he touches the once saved, always saved, that you can be broken off of this tree. Verse 23, and they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, here's where we see, will be grafted in. So if you stop your unbelief, you can be grafted in. And this is good news for the Jew. This is good news for anyone and everyone, like, that the gospel just doesn't touch one region one nationality, but it goes first to the Jew, yes, but then to the uttermost bounds of the earth. You, you and, and we and me as a Christian, we don't worship in one um, geographical place, right? We don't worship a land. We worship a person, and his name is Jesus, and he touches every and any nation and land. This is how big our God is. So it speaks of this grafting. And you can get into all of Romans, really 9 through 11, and it, it goes in depth. But this is kind of the, the bread and butter that I'm giving you here. All right, verse 24. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, come on, we're some wild Gentiles, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. So it's saying in Israel, in the Jewish, or in the Jew, 
uh, in the Hebrew that it is the natural tree. It is what God has always used. This is redemptive theology that it, he goes from beginning to end and God did not make a mistake and he did not have to put a parenthesis around modern day Israel, that what you see on a map, and say, I now have plan B, which is the church. That's what that talks to us, that we're just plan B, that it all kind of got screwed up and messed up. And so God's still gonna deal with Israel. They have a special dispensation, but now we're just plan B and God's dealing with the church. And how you have to read scripture is always linear, that God does not make a mistake. He's always on plan A. And now we are a part of the Israel of God and it is revealed in the church. So we're gonna get into this and understand this a little deeper. And I love what verse 25 says. It says, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should not be ignorant. So right here. And I think the majority of people, again, just by blind, simple, saving faith, if you don't study into these things, you can be just by default ignorant about it. And you just kind of trust what you're being taught. So it says, don't be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. And aren't there a ton of opinions along these things? That blindness is a part, has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come, has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. And it goes in uh, as, it, as it finishes off there. And what you have to understand in this text is in the blindness of Israel, is blindness was not God putting a blindness on them. It was as a result of their continued rejection of Jesus. We're going to get into in the coming weeks, if you look at modern day Judaism and what their oral law teaches, which was canonized in, in and around the year 600, it is the Talmud. It is how they interpret their worldview. It is essentially their catechism. It's their Bible, the Talmud. And what you'll see as you get into this, the text in the scripture, it is, it is the most anti-Christ text of how it is to reject Jesus at all cost and to speak against the person of Jesus, to get um, Christians to deny the divinity of Jesus, that it, it's all the oral law from when Christ came up to the year 600, canonized and put together. And when you see the anti-Christ rhetoric that is in the Talmud, it would make you fall on your back. That this is what Orthodox believing Jews believe about the person of Jesus. And you've got to get this romantic view kind of out of your mind and you have to understand that Jews reject Jesus as the Messiah. They do not follow Jesus. They reject Jesus. And they even have agendas that are at work and at play to get Christians to essentially apostatize out of the faith. And, and this really kind of takes us to Galatians 6, that these type of thoughts and thinking is even seen here by Paul where there's this notion going around that Paul has to knit very quickly. And men, you're going to be thankful for this but saying in order for you to become a Christian, you first have to become a Jew and you've got to get circumcised, all right? So in order to come into the fullness of your faith or to follow this, you've got to become a Jew first and then you've got to be circumcised. So let's flip over to Galatians chapter six. And again, I want to put it out there that we've been in the place, we've supported organizations, Christians United for Israel, We've sent thousands and thousands of dollars. We've followed in this type of, of way of thinking for many years as a church. 
And if I can just be so honest, these type of organizations are heavily dispensational. John Hagee, Jimmy Evans, just to name a few names. I've read the books. I've put the time into study. And what hurts my heart is there's always big money involved in these type of talks. If you, one of Jimmy Evans' most recent books, which talks about a pre-trib rapture, what he teaches through this, and when he gives after his teaching, he gets to the end, and this is just cringy for me, and if you're kind of in my generation, the cringy televangelist, you're kind of done with it. And what you get in at the end of his, his segment is he says, Instead of just buying one book, why don't you buy a second one? Because when you get raptured, you need to leave a book behind for, for you know, everyone who's left behind. And these are kind of the ploys that are engaged on these topics. And not only that, if you've even read the Left Behind series, maybe you grew up reading as a kid, I know did, you've seen the Kirk Cameron movies, Nicolas Cage recently, you know he would make his way in. Um, you've got to understand that these are fiction. And they're labeled as fiction. But to us, again, it is a blind eye. You see parallels of truth. This is the hard part is you see parallels of truth in this way of thinking. So you've got to then be studied and versed to say that which is fiction and nonfiction, that which is Bible and not Bible, or that which is kind of an evangelical tradition and that which isn't. So Galatians 6, and we'll start at verse 13. It says, for not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Hear this, for in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. This is why all of us, we, the way we enter into this kingdom, we enter into this covenant is through saving faith, is through the baptismal waters, is through being filled with the Holy Spirit, these great mysteries that were given in this covenant that assure our salvation, that, that make us into a new creation. It's not through circumcision or becoming a Jew, but it is covenantal redemptive theology that is basic New Testament understanding. So he's saying it, it's not by this way. For in, in verse 16, and as many according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon, and this is important, the Israel of God. The Israel of God. Now what you have to wrestle with that if you take just a literal approach to scripture that anytime you see Israel, it's talking about, if you Google a map of Israel, that is what it's talking about. That is a very poor reading of Scripture, and it is a very literal reading of Scripture. And what you've got to understand is that the church is grafted in as spiritual Israel, that the church of what is speaking here is the Israel of God. And when you begin to see it in this light, it makes sense because the questions you have to ask is how does a nation that is rejecting Jesus rejects the cross, rejects basic New Testament theology. How are they the ones that are the Israel of God when they reject the Messiah? 
the church, who is the, the, the spotless bride of Christ, who is a bride that is honoring and that is redeemed, they are the ones that are now carrying on the mission of Jesus. And so in this, in this dispensational theology, what is, is kind of vicious about it is anytime you see wars and rumors of wars, much, much of what we're seeing today, a lot of dispensationalists get very excited because this is a sign that the end is, is closer, that the rapture is going to happen because when Israel gets up in arms, this is where I'm told and, and what I believe that, you know, I'm out of here and God's going to judge and deal with the Jews and they're going to deal with all the tribulation. And I, I'm, I as a Christian, am going to be exempt because I'm going to be raptured out. So you've got to understand that a lot of what you see today and why the resources and the weapons and the money is poured into Israel from dispensational theology is I can help usher and move forth end time biblical prophetic events if we just keep gunning up and, and politicizing Israel to get this thing going and to get this thing uh, intact. And another really hard point of dispensational theology is they believe that uh, almost one out of every three Jews will be um, brutally murdered, slaughtered, destroyed uh, in the tribulation period. So all these Jews have to gather together so that these end time events will occur. Many will not talk about that, but it is in Darby's teaching and it is understood of the, the brutal death that has to happen of the Jewish people. So I know I'm throwing a lot out and as I'm throwing this out, you're trying to, to fill me out here. You're trying to understand where is the, all of this coming from. I've never heard it in this way. Maybe some of you have. You've started to question these things. But again, all of it is backed up from the beginning, Christ to the apostles, what's handed down. And, it, and the majority view is not dispensationalism in the universal worldwide church. It is covenantal redemptive theology that Israel is the church, and the Israel of God is the church. It's not what you see on a map that was put there in 1948, a, a sovereign state. And like I said, Israel has the right to defend themselves as a sovereign nation. That's, I'm not speaking against that. But what you have to understand is a, is a better reading, a true reading, a reading of what was handed down by Jesus, and we're going to see what Jesus has to say in a minute, what Paul has to say that this is what is unbroken. This is the chain that is not ending. It is, it is linear from start to finish. And it's not, again, God in heaven pulling these levers of these different dispensations that have to take place where it's just very self-interpreted. And where you get a lot of this too is a Schofield Bible. In the 1980s, this was very popular. And if you maybe grew up on a Schofield Bible, you've had one, um, maybe you have one on the shelf, is Schofield was heavily dispensational. So a lot of that was carried through that into televangelism and in the t into modern televangelism where it's very popular to understand this way of thinking. So as we look at what Jesus has to say, let's turn to Matthew 3, verse 9. So again, this is the conversation of what Jesus dealt with regularly with Jews is I'm of Abrahamic DNA. So my DNA gives me a pass or gives me access into heaven or gives me access into the kingdom. This is what Jesus says. He says in verse nine, and do not think or say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. 
For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. So he's reputing this and saying, just because you have Abrahamic DNA does not give you pass. And, and, and what you've got to see this through is of where does Jesus say, because you have a special DNA, a special birth, a special place, um, because of what's in your blood, that gives you a special right. That's not the way of Jesus. But f- the, with the Israel or the Jew that we see, it's always given in this light of modern Zionism and modern understanding of Israel. Let's see what Jesus says in Luke 3, 8. Jesus says this, it says, Therefore, bear the fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. So again, you, you see these interactions Jesus has. For I say to you that God is able to raise you up as children to Abraham from these stones. So again, he's addressing that the Abrahamic DNA does not give you a special dispensation. It doesn't give you special access that everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, if you hear anything, has to come to the Lamb. If we want to see all of the turmoil in the Middle East come to a screeching halt, everyone repent and turn to Jesus, both Arab and Jew. And if you want to think of it in one way, in Ishmael, Arabs also have Abrahamic DNA. So again, the conversation of DNA is not one you can stand on Jesus speaks against it. And if you want to see who has Abrahamic DNA, it's Jew and Arab. So that does not give the, uh, the pass here. You still like me? Are we, are we still friends? Okay. And again, I, I know I'm touching a sacred cow. Um, because you're taught and you're told, if I don't support Israel of what I'm told is Israel, that I'm anti-Semitic or I'm heretical or this is replacement theology. But what you've got to get into understanding that which is the political state and that which is the biblical state of who Israel is, which again, the Israel of God is the church. Acts 2, 38 through 39. So as Jews are being saved, coming into the kingdom, this is the sending of the Holy Spirit. This is New Testament theology at its core and its finest. Everyone has to repent. This is what Peter said. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So aren't you thankful that even in this, that as Jews get grafted in, as Gentiles have to be grafted in to the Israel of God, is that this is how it all happens. This is why we preach. This is why we have a church. This is why we understand what Peter said in this day and time still lives in our day and time. You've got to repent. You've got to be baptized. This is where your sins are forgiven, that you receive the gift gift of the Holy Spirit. And what I want to do is just read um, a great early... uh, uh, church father that I follow. Um, and this is going to give you uh, a, a good understanding because, again, as Christians, we shouldn't settle for what John Calvin said. We shouldn't settle for what John Hagee said. 
you shouldn't settle for what Pastor Garrett says. You're, you should go and search these things out of what I'm teaching you today. Many of us, we, we stop at, at the Protestant Reformation or what Martin Luther said, and we don't go back to the purest understanding of Scripture. And this is what I've been committed over the last five years to give you, not just a Protestant lens, but I'm going all the way back to the beginning. What did Jesus Christ establish, and then what did he hand to the apostles? And no, it's not the Roman Catholic Church of what I'm giving you. Please understand that, all right? Um, Now, let me tell you, if you've grown up Catholic here, you're not going to be bashed by this church. If you've grown up Orthodox, you're not gonna be bashed by this church. You go into most Protestant churches, and if you've come from a Catholic background, you're gonna be ran into the ground, and your theology is gonna be expunged. So understand of the long-term picture here, Pastor Garrett is very patient, and what I see into the future of our church is I'm thinking very long-term. This message that is given today is through the lens of what can happen in the next 20, 30, 40 years. And it's, it's breaking out of a mega church mold and model. As a church grows, you grab a hold of this dispensational theology. And I can tell you, I have heard pastors out of their mouth say, because I have given so much money to Israel, God has given so much money back to us so we can build the sanctuary, we can build the church, that it's almost this genie mentality is I bless Israel, the physical state on a map, then God will bless me. It's a give and get type of understanding. You've got to understand the the wicked, hard parts of dispensationalism. This is where these backdoor conversations live of I use Israel and Israel uses me, okay? So I want to read this in three points. If If you're taking notes, you can write these down. I'll send this to you. I promise it'll be hopeful. Number one, we've got to understand the old covenant is over. Aren't you thankful for a better covenant? The old covenant has been fulfilled fully and perfectly in the person of Christ. Hear this. The covenant God made with Abraham blessed him and his descendants with the land of Canaan and set them apart as the people of God. This covenant was called everlasting because it would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ who reigns forever. The book of Hebrews calls the old covenant a shadow of the good things to come, Hebrews 10.1. For it was a preparation for the new covenant inaugurated by the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. In order for the new covenant, which offers salvation to all, Jew and Gentile alike, to take effect, the promises of the old covenant had to be fulfilled. This was done in Christ. Thus we read that God has made the first covenant obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away, Hebrews 8.13. Interestingly, the book of Hebrews was written about A.D. 70, the same year the temple in Jerusalem, a last visible sign of the old covenant, was destroyed. Now the people of God have in view the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, as reflected uh, in the scriptures. Let me offer an illustration. I thought this was great. This gives us a better understanding of this transition of covenants. Some years back, Art Modell, owner of the Cleveland Browns, decided to move his football team to Baltimore. Cleveland struck a deal allowing the city to retain ownership of the name Browns. They planned on another Browns team playing in their stadium. So Modell called his his team the Baltimore Ravens. And today, the new Cleveland Browns are also in place. Let's say that several centuries passed 
The Browns are still playing in Cleveland, but some of Art Modell's descendants have come back to town and they decide to lay claim to the whole operation. We were here for years, they say, they announced to the fans. It's our team, we're the originals, and we're taking over. There'd be one giant ruckus in Cleveland, right? This would happen. Heck, even the Pittsburgh fans would come to their aid. We know that, Woody. Christians know that if Israel wants to form a secular state and regroup as a people, they certainly can do so. But they cannot claim to be there by divine intent, or as dispensationalists call this, manifest destiny. Why? Because in rejecting Jesus Christ as God and Messiah, the nation gave up the franchise as the people of God. There is no divine mandate justifying Israel's claim over Palestine. The Apostle John wrote concerning Christ and the Jews. He came to his own Israel, and his, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, Jew and Gentile alike, to them he gave them rights to become children of God. This is John 1, 11 through 12. On the night Jesus was betrayed, Jesus took the cup, he gave thanks, and he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the many of the remission of sins, Matthew 26, 27, and 28. The old covenant is complete, it is fulfilled, the new has come, and it is everlasting. And you've got to think about this, is before I go on here. In dispensational theology uh, of what the kingdom of God is to be at the end, uh, you're told in this new Jerusalem, and it's the same folly and era of Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot betrayed Jesus. What was, what was the, the, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back for Judas Iscariot is Judas wanted a political Jesus. He wanted Jesus that would overrun, overtake Rome, their oppression. And when Jesus had a different mode and a different mandate and a different way to do so, that he would touch the hearts, he would fulfill the covenant, he wouldn't do it through politics and, and gearing up with warfare and weapons, right? So in that, Judas betrays Jesus. The same as today in dispensational theology, it, it's propping up this political takeover of Jesus when he brings the kingdom. And this has never been or never will be the way of Jesus of what we see, the same folly that Judas fell for and that many fell for, that this was not how Jesus was to come. And all of Israel for years, all through the New Testament was told of how their Messiah would come, that it wouldn't be through a political stance, it would be through a redeeming savior who would save them from their sins and redeem them. So number two is this, the church is the people of God, is the Israel of God. The prophet Isaiah, who wrote in about 700 BC, records God the Father speaking of his son. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Isaiah 42.1. Long before the Son of God came to us in human flesh, the Jews were told by God through their prophets that salvation would no longer be just for Israel. The Gentiles too would receive his justice. And then the Father gives the Son a remarkable promise. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you a covenant to the people as a light to the Gentiles. Jesus Christ himself would be a covenant and a light to Gentile believers. And it is apparent the beloved Simon 
had Isaiah's prophecy in mind when he held the infant Christ in his arms and acclaimed him as a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. Luke 2, 32. Peter, writing to the early Christian, acknowledged that his kinsmen who disbelieve in Christ have become disobedient to God. But in the church, to Jew and Gentile alike, he brings great encouragement. Hear this. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. It doesn't get any clearer than this. In this passage calls the church a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and the people of God. These are the terms from the Old Testament used to describe ancient Israel. Does this mean God sees the church as a new Israel? Paul answers the question as he concludes his letter to the Galatians. We just read this. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but a new creation. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Galatians 6, 5 and 6, 15, 16. When the Apostle Paul call a Gentile church in Asian Minor the Israel of God, the answer comes earlier in his letter to the Galatians when he discusses what it takes to be a true child of Abraham. Hear this in Galatians 3, 7 through 9. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. This is remarkable, that it's through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, we in the church have become children of Abraham. If you didn't know this, you are children of Abraham through faith. And you are grafted into Israel. And we have received the blessings that God promised to Abraham. Israel is no longer those who live in a certain geographical place. It is not an ethnicity. It is not a political state. The true Israel continues on through history, serving the King of Kings, the resurrected and reigning Christ as the church. Instead of the earthly Jerusalem, the people of God seek the Jerusalem above. When Jesus comes back at his second coming, he will bring a new Jerusalem. We aren't looking for a, a, a political state Jerusalem. We are looking for a new Jerusalem that Jesus will bring back at his second coming. Many of the, those who rebut dispensationalism will say this, that dispensationalism, dispensationalism is one of the greatest distractions to the church because you get all caught up and it's all consuming and you can't be distracted by this. I close with this. And number three, Jesus told us this would happen. The words of Jesus speak loud and clear that these things would happen and what this looks like. And we're gonna prepare to take communion. This is why we take communion because we're reminded of the covenant we have. It says this. And I won't read it for lack of time, but you can read Matthew 21, 33 through 44, where Jesus talks about the vine dresser and speaks this parable very clearly to the Sadducee, to the Pharisee, the religious Jews of his time. And as he speaks this parable of the vine dresser, he knows it's directly correlated to them. 
So as you read the parable, here's what you will see in it. So often in the New Testament, when the Lord spoke a parable, the chief priests and the Pharisees just didn't get it. Maybe some of you, you ever read a parable and you're like, I have no idea what Jesus is talking about here. Well, you're not alone. But in this specific parable, that's not the case here. Matthew goes on to tell us, now the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parable and they perceived that he was speaking of them. Matthew 21, 45. Not only is the passage clear to the Christian church, it was clear to the leaders of Israel. The kingdom of God would be taken from Israel and given to a new nation, the church of the living God. We are that new nation, the universal church. So the scriptures make the case. The old covenant has been fulfilled, the new has come, and it is the church that is the people of God, the heirs of the promise made to Abraham and the true Israel And Jesus said it so clearly that even those who did not want to hear it actually understood it when he gives the parable of the vine dresser. For Bible-believing evangelicals, the scriptures have spoken. Any claim that the modern state of Israel is somehow a fulfillment of God's prophetic timetable simply is not valid. The kingdom of God is in the hands of the church. And so I know, again, this is a very large pill to swallow. And some of you, maybe most of you, will walk out of here not agreeing with this because of how you've been taught or the literal understanding of when you read scripture. But understand, if you will give it some time, if you will take the resources I send to you and you will study them, you will open your Bible and read what Jesus said himself, There is a laundry list of scripture I could give you of what Jesus says to the unbelieving Jews. And it's not nice and it's not sensitive and it's not empathetic. You've got to understand that even in the passion story, yes, it was our sins that nailed Jesus on the cross, but it was unbelieving Jews that pushed him there. And so you've got to understand, and again, you've got to unromanticize the American Western version of what you see on a map is Israel, that there is a large disconnection of the Israel you read in scripture and the secular state, the secular Jew of what you see on the map of present day. Are you okay today? Anybody got a few things to wrestle with this week? All right. Anybody okay? You're like, okay, I've kind of always felt this. I've kind of always known this, but maybe I've never heard it preached and articulated. Well, here you go. Let me say this in the parallels, that we as Christians do pray for the salvation of the Jew. We are commanded to do this, that we want every Jew to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Okay? Hear this. It's not an accident of history that after 2,000 years, the Jews still exist as a people. And while most Jewish people have rejected Christ as God and Messiah, The Lord has not rejected them. One commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans says this. The apostle refuses to regard this act of rejection on the Jewish side as something final. With far-reaching, unquenchable hope, he looks beyond the present situation to the time when so he is convinced the whole of Israel will finally turn to Christ. This is spoken in scripture that there will be an event 
there will be a gathering. uh, And even we talked about this in Elijah, where Elijah believed he was the only one who believed. And God said, no, there is a remnant of those who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So there is a remnant that God has of where unbelieving Jews will become believing Jews, will bow the knee to Jesus, will repent and come fully into the person and be grafted into Christ. So again, there are parallels, and this is one of them, that Jews will believe, they will repent. And this will be a a sign that we are in the last days. As Christians, we must say with the Apostle Paul, according to Romans 10.1, my heart's desire and prayer to God is for Israel is that they may be saved. So we believe if you know someone who's Jewish, all of the anti-Semitic hate is deplorable. We see it in our country. We see it on universities and campuses. When you you can read into the scripture and pick up a very anti-Semitic view and you get angry with Jews, you get mean with Jews and and it, it belongs to, all the land belongs to certain pre-1967 dates and, and you, you hear all the political jargon. Many of what you see today is more on a political standpoint. Insert evangelicals, they bring a biblical standpoint, but a lot of the, the, the confusion at large is on lines of land, who owns what, and is dispensationalists, they see these things and they see that the end is drawing near, so we're gonna throw resources and weapons and all these things into it to help further this thing on. And what I'm telling you today, don't get lost in the sauce of this stuff. Don't be the guy whose mandate is to run to every church in Northern Kentucky and put a massive graph of when Jesus is coming back. I have acquaintances I went to school with that have put off having families that have actually moved to the state of Israel to help usher in end time events. They've given their life to this theology and are in Israel living, trying to sift and to fill out where God is, when he'll act, when he'll move. And my heart breaks because this is why I feel so empowered to teach these things and convicted to is because it can put you and run you into a place that God never intended. I've said it before and I will say it again. Bad theology hurts people. And I will be a church, we will be a church, this will be a church where we do not tolerate bad theology because I don't want you to be hurt. I don't want your family to be hurt. And just because it's big and it's powerful and it's charismatic and there's a lot of money behind it and a large following, we should learn by now, doesn't mean that God is blessing it. Bigger is not always better. Give me the hole in the wall that will preach the truth at all costs. That's where I'll be. That's the church will be. And I'm telling you, the reason God is blessing this church is because we will deal with things like this. Not because how good of a preacher Pastor Garrett is. I ain't that good. But it's because we will look at anything and everything and won't be bound because Brother Big Bucks has given a lot of money to Israel, so we just won't touch it. I'm telling you, this is if you get in the back doors of what happens in a lot of churches... You touch the money, it's not going to be preached. We will be a church. You can touch the money all you want. You can stop giving. We're going to continue on because we believe God's here. We believe this is his church. This is not my church. 
and we're going to preach it as it needs to be preached. And what you're seeing is, is at the very beginning of something that's happening. And I want to steward it with all diligence. And what I'm showing God, and I pray you do too, is take a message like this as it touches some of your theology and go and wrestle with it. Because there's going to be a lot of things through the years that come that you're not going to agree with. You're just not going to simply understand as an evangelical, as a Pentecostal, as a charismatic. Because you don't get into drawing theological lines. It's a broad stroke. And if it feels good or there's anointing or if I begin to preach with unction, then that must be God. Just because a preacher gets loud and you feel some anointing and there's a band playing behind them, doesn't mean that God is speaking authoritatively through that person necessarily. God can speak through that, but what we've done is we've taken these things that have started genuine and now we know how to manipulate people and to move them into something or to move them into the presence of God. Or we've got to move our bodies and get in this headspace so much until we start believing and feeling something. I'm telling you today, we're not going to be a church that's going to move you in your feelings and in your vibes. We're going to move you with truth. We're not going to be moved by what is the, and this is what I love about the Lamb. Every party, Democrat, Republican, all have to come to the Lamb, every political party, conservative, progressive. One party, and again, this is, you got to, and you get into American history here. You've got to understand how our country is so divided. And so much of Christianity is branded and sold in the Western church. It's not served. And many a times, what sells the books? One author you'll see me send, maybe you know him by the Bible answer man, Hank Hanegraaff. He teaches this. I've read his books, uh, Covenantal Theology. And he was friends, close friends with Jerry Farewell, Liberty University. And when he caught wind that he was going against the dispensational theology, which was propagated here, uh, Jerry, he t tells us in his book, called every partner, every connection that he's ever spoken in, in, at and said, cut him off. He's gone rogue. He's heretical. Hank Hanegraaff says he had nine birth children and three adoptive children, raised 12 kids, and said literally he lost every speaking engagement, um, he had sold millions of books literally at that time. Everyone stopped buying his books. And so understand when you step outside of the norm here, people are gonna not agree with you. It's not in the evangelical circle what everybody believes here. Now, what is traditional to the church is covenantal theology. Again, this dispensational theology is only 200 years old. It's not 2,000 years old. So anytime you see something new inserted, you've got to then question it and dissect it and say, why did this come in? Why do I believe this? And it's going to get rocky in your faith. You might question some things, but understand there are certain things, deconstruction gets thrown around, but there are certain things you have to deconstruct from so you can reconstruct on the purity of Christ. You don't deconstruct out of Jesus, please understand this, but you deconstruct to what is the purest stream of Jesus and say, from that stream, I will drink of its living water. 
not some dead old tradition and religion of some old guy by the name of John Nelson Darby came up with. Deemed heretical, then comes back because Israel became a state in 1948 and said that vindicates him. That's it in a nutshell. So I'm not gonna be able to answer questions today. I know you have them, but you have my email. Please email questions you have. If it's really eating at you, call me and uh, I'll talk you through any questions you have. Um, if that doesn't work, never mind, I won't say that. It's okay, come back to church next week. We'll, we'll, we'll get into it. And we're gonna be getting, as we get into Christmas, we're gonna be looking at the new covenant very closely and opening up what the new covenant means. So I get, I've dropped a bomb today on some of you, but understand where I'm coming from, my heart's intent, is I could easily give you the other message and everybody applaud, you wave the flag and you walk out happy and that's what I've always heard. That's not who we are. And you're gonna see as we get into some of these things, it's gonna help you brace and understand where it comes from and what the modern secular Jew believes about Jesus and it will be heartbreaking. So just prepare your heart and minds because there's gonna be some breaking of, of this thinking. And I don't expect you to get it all in one service or in one series, but what you have to understand of what guides your eschatology to the second coming of Christ is important. And you can't just say it's all just open-handed and we're all just gonna be out of here anyway, so it really doesn't matter how we get there. It can be very clear and it can be very precise and you can walk away with clarity and not live in confusion on these topics. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We pray it encouraged, uplifted, and challenged you to become more like Christ. We would love to hear from you. You can email your prayer request to prayer at gpcky.com. Loving our podcast? Take a moment and like and subscribe on our YouTube channel to stay up to date with all of our new content. Thanks for listening.